triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will arouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Our second reading is from the New Testament, from the book of Luke on page 854. It's chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of plower that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Michael has said, this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, is known by Christians throughout the world as Palm Sunday. I've always thought of it as a happy day, a bright moment in the somberness of Lent and before the darkness of Good Friday. It's a favourite story to reenact with Sunday school children. The donkey, the procession, the waving of palm branches, the cries of Hosanna. You might have memories of such Palm Sunday celebrations, even going back to your own days in Sunday school. And this is the way it's portrayed in hymns such as, All glory, Lord, and honour to you, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. 
And there's various children's songs. Praise King Jesus riding into town, riding on a donkey, throw your jackets down, sing Hosanna, wave your branches. But Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is not quite like that. Did you notice what was missing as it was read? As he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, a whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. So where are the children? Where are the palms? And where are the hosannas? There are palm branches in the account of this event in John's Gospel, and there are branches as well as cloaks being thrown on the ground in Matthew and Mark's account. And there are the shouts of Hosanna in Matthew, Mark and John, but not in Luke. No branches of any kind and no Hosannas. Not really Palm Sunday at all. So what's going on? Many people are bothered when there are seeming contradictions or discrepancies between accounts in the Gospels of the same event. They want to know, were there palm branches or not? Did the crowd shout Hosanna or not? Which Gospel writers got it right and which ones got it wrong? But I don't think there's a problem here at all. For reasons that will hopefully become clear, the Gospel writers, Luke in this instance, chose to exclude certain aspects of the story that others included and to include certain aspects that others excluded. Logia is an organisation within St Andrews University in Scotland that seeks to support women who are considering or already pursuing postgraduate education in biblical studies or theology. My daughter Hannah is part of it. Anyway, they set up a mentoring network and I last year was mentoring a young woman from Nigeria who's doing a PhD at Fuller in California. Her name is Eunice and she is a real live wire. Uh, she already has a master's in New Testament studies. We were chatting about her studies and how she'll use them when she returns to Nigeria. Look out, Nigeria. But Eunice said something really interesting about the difference between the way Nigerians and Westerners, like us, approach the New Testament. She said, because of their oral tradition, what you see as contradictions, we see as variations in the story. Because when we recount an event, we don't all tell the story in the same way. We pick and choose what is significant to us. Imagine two football fans who support different teams recounting what happened in a game. Each would focus on their own team's achievements, what was important to them. It's the same game, at different perspectives. And so it is with Luke's account of, well, we can't really call it Palm Sunday, given the absence of palms. We'll call it 
the entry into Jerusalem. And compared to the other gospel accounts, Luke's account is much darker, more somber. Look at this meme about the way Batman is portrayed on TV and in movies. It's got darker and darker with time until in the last one, you can't really see him at all. But this, express, this is darker both literally and thematically. And that expresses the perspective of the writers, their particular interpretation. And so it is with Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, it is darker than the other gospel writers. But before we look at Luke's uniquely dark perspective on this story, let's take a look at what all the gospel writers agree happened, that all the gospel writers have in common. And that is that Jesus came into the city riding on a donkey. And somehow, something to do with the prophecy in Zechariah, this indicates that Jesus was a king. Obviously, there's some symbolism here that's lost on us. If we saw someone riding on a donkey, we would not assume that they were making a claim to be a king. If they were, we might expect them to arrive in a Bentley or a gold carriage, or perhaps in those days, a war horse on a war horse or in a chariot, but not a donkey. Different things symbolise royalty to us, as we'll no doubt see in a month or so's time with the coronation of King Charles. The symbolism of the donkey is lost on us unless we have prior knowledge. Here's a current example, or not so current now, of how we need prior knowledge to make sense of a symbol. Fifteen months ago, would you have known what this meant? And so, in various ways, all the gospel writers explain the symbolism of the donkey for us. Matthew and Mark, like Luke, begin by making it clear that Jesus' choice of the donkey to ride on is significant and carefully planned. And they do that by labouring the details of the story. So far on his journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has travelled by foot but he deliberately chooses to go the last mile or so and actually enter the city on a donkey. And it's not just because he was tired. He sends two of his disciples with precise instructions about what they are to do, what they'll find out and what they should say. So the disciples find this colt, this young donkey, just as Jesus said they would. He hadn't been into Jerusalem for some months, so he couldn't have prearranged it. Rather, he has prophetic knowledge. It's part of the divine plan. Even the detail about the response of the owners of the cult seems to underline Jesus' authority. Why should they agree to let the disciples take it just because they're told the Lord needs it? It's not apparent in the English translation, but in Greek, the owners are the kyrioi, the masters or lords of the donkey. Greek word kyrios is lord. Jesus is lord. So the same word the disciples use when they say the kyrios, the lord, needs it. 
Somehow, the owners or lords of the donkey recognise that Jesus' claim as Lord overrules their claim. So far, we just have hints that Jesus' choice of the donkey is an important symbol. But Matthew and John then explain why. Most first century Jews would have been very familiar with this prophecy, but we, maybe not so much. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And now this prophecy is being fulfilled. Luke doesn't quote the verse from Zechariah's prophecy, but the connection is implied in the way he goes into so much detail about the cult. And clearly, Jesus' disciples and some of the people in the crowd understand the symbolism. They spread their cloaks on the ground, a welcome suitable for royalty. So we see why it was so important to Jesus that he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He's making a claim to be king. But we shouldn't misunderstand this. It's not as if Jesus becomes their king as a result of this event, as if it were some kind of coronation parade. No, Jesus has been acclaimed as king even before his birth. In the first chapter of Luke, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her son Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Now I said that Luke's version of this story is darker than the other gospel writers. First, look at the context the context of what comes immediately before this story and then what comes immediately after. Immediately before the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Luke's Gospel, and only in Luke's Gospel, Jesus concludes a parable, the Master saying these words, But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So immediately after talk of people who reject their king, Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. And then immediately after this story in Luke's gospel, and only in Luke's gospel, Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He weeps and says, if you... Even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in Luke's gospel is bracketed by the theme of rejection. There is no sense in which Jesus is welcomed and accepted as king to the city. But you'll say, surely the crowds did welcome him. And they shouted out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, in Matthew's account, it is a very large crowd. In Mark, 
many people, and in John, the great crowd that had come for the festival. But not in Luke. Look carefully at verse 37. It is not the crowd in general who shout out with joy, but the whole crowd of disciples. It's not those who come out to meet Jesus, but those who've been following him all the way. The city of Jerusalem does not welcome Jesus as king, only his disciples. What do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's actually a quote from Psalm 118. Probably they were actually singing the entire psalm as Jesus was riding into the city. It was a psalm that they knew very well. It's a psalm that welcomes the king who delivered them from their enemies. It had been used in two contexts in Israel's history. First, it was used in Israel before the exile in annual re-enthronement rituals as a hymn of royal entry. So it was fitting for the occasion when Jesus entered Jerusalem as king. But later on in Israel's history, it was sung at the Festival of Booths, and palm branches were used in this celebration. The waving of palm branches was a recognised practice to indicate political triumph and victory. Maybe they were waving some palm branches in Aston last night. And in the very next verse in Psalm 118, after blessed is he who comes in the, in the Lord, we read, with boughs, branches in hand, join in the festal procession. So it seems most likely there was some branch, a waving of palm branches going on, which makes it all the more striking that Luke doesn't mention it. The reason, I think, is that he sees this event as a royal entry, but not as a festival or a celebration. His interpretation of this event is much darker than that. So no palm branches, no adoring crowds, and no hosannas. All the other gospels begin with the words of the people with hosanna. Matthew and Mark have it a second time. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is no surprise since Hosanna also comes from Psalm 118. In fact, verse 25 says, Lord, save us. And the Hebrew, save us, is Hosanna. That's what it means. Save us, we beg you. So Matthew, Mark and John just transliterate the Hebrew and make it Hosanna. I wonder if you knew that. I certainly didn't. I always assumed Hosanna just meant something like hallelujah, but it actually means God save us. And Luke doesn't include it. What does he include instead of Hosanna? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That should remind you of something. Perhaps that reminds you of the message of the angels to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. But in our passage, it is peace in heaven, not peace on earth. 
Peace on earth has not yet been achieved, but something even bigger is happening. Peace in heaven. God in Christ is about to reconcile the whole world, the whole cosmos to himself. Something is happening here that is bigger than the people of Jerusalem. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the earth is still waiting for peace, as we are all too painfully aware in these days. Another difference in Luke's account is that he includes the objection of some of the Pharisees to what is going on. Throughout the gospel, we've seen the hostility to Jesus growing. The Pharisees are outraged that the crowd is welcoming Jesus as king. They tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to stop them from singing. And so, in this way, Luke also ties the event with the preceding parable about those who do not want me to be king over them. And Jesus laments immediately after about those who did not recognise the time of God's coming. So even in this seemingly joyous moment, the theme of rejection hangs over Jesus. Jesus' response to the Pharisees is amazing. You could preach a whole sermon on this verse alone, but I won't. Instead of telling his disciples to stop, he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a huge claim. In the Old Testament, inanimate creations such as trees and mountains, sun and moon and stars are portrayed as praising God. And Jesus is saying that even the stones recognize who he is and rejoice. But those like the Pharisees, who might have been expected to recognise him, not only fail to recognise him, but they will violently oppose him. So in Luke's Gospel, Palm Sunday, or perhaps we should say, no Palm Sunday, is not a celebration. The crowds don't understand. Jerusalem doesn't welcome him. The Pharisees reject him, and Jesus weeps over the city. I'm reminded of an old hymn that captures this sense of foreboding, this shadow that hangs over Jesus, even as he rides in. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Perhaps this is the right No Palm Sunday for our time. A time for weeping over a world that rejects Jesus. A world that is suffering, disease, hunger, corruption, injustice, violence, and the threat of war. As we begin Holy Week, let's make it a week of praying for this world that God loves because Jesus is still king and God is at work to reconcile all things to himself in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
merciful God, as we enter Holy Week, turn our hearts again to Jerusalem and to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We lament over this suffering and broken world. We pray beauty for brokenness, hope for despair, refuge from cruel wars, bread for the children. May your kingdom come. Amen.